Welcome back to the Shiloh podcast with me, Rosie Dawson. And I'm sorry about the interruption. We've had this series so early in its run. It's not something we had any control over. Uh, But anyway, we're back and ready for another difficult conversation around the Bible and sexual violence. And today I am with... Chris, I'm Chris Greenoff and I'm Reader in Theology and Religion at Edgehill University. And you're also one of the new co-directors of the Shiloh Project. So congratulations. Yeah, Thank you. Um, how does this new role fit into your wider area of research? Yeah, well, my academic research is really concerned with contemporary issues. So I've always been interested in how religion, biblical studies, theology matters to people today and is relevant to people today. Um, so, so far my work's looked at inequalities and injustices. I've worked on LGBTQ plus Christian identities, queer theologies, queer approaches. Um, and I've supported Shiloh for a number of years now, since, since it began really. So I'm delighted to be working with Caroline Blard, Johanna Stubert and Emily Colgan continuing this important work. Now, today we're going to be talking about sexual violence against men, in the Bible that is. Um, And that's the subject of the book that you've just published with Routledge in the series on rape, culture, religion and the Bible. Uh, Just an alert to listeners that by its very nature this is going to contain material that you might find disturbing, so please do be aware of this. Chris, why has it been important for you to delve into this subject? Well, the subject of sexual violence against men hasn't really had much attention in the studies on sexual violence and, you know, that's mainly because girls and women experience sexual violence on a much greater scale. But in fact, one in six men have experienced some form of sexual violence. And the subject is surrounded in taboo, it's surrounded in shame, it's surrounded in stigma. Um, As with all sexual violence, um, there's a chronic underreporting by male victims. But for men particularly, there's a lot of myths around, you know, what, what happens if a man is sexually assaulted or sexually violated. You know, there's a myth that men cannot be sexually violated um, or that a man is blameworthy or gains some sort of pleasure from the experience if it were to happen to him. Um, there's some myths that sexual abuse is less damaging and harmful to male victims than it is for female victims. And of course, there's a myth that if a man is raped or a man is a perpetrator, that they're in some way gay. Um, and that being a victim of sexual abuse might make you gay. Mm. So it has nothing to do with um, your masculinity or your sexual or gender identity. Men and boys can and are victims of sexual assault and sexual violence. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, in, in the last pod- podcast, um, I was talking to Helen Painter, and uh, in her examination of the story of the Levite's wife in Judges, she spent quite a lot of time looking at a recent very high-profile rape case in India. Now, you're doing something similar um, in your book by drawing our attention to a particular case of sexual assault against men. So tell me very briefly what this case involved and why you thought, I think you've kind of told us already, but why you thought it was necessary to bring it into a discussion about sexual violence in the Bible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, it's so important to ground all our research in actual real-life events. So it stops the discussion of sexual violence being really abstract or or academic, but it's real and there are real social implications for it. So the actual case that that I begin the book, um, contextualising the book in, is the case in Manchester in the United Kingdom. And it was the most prolific serial rape case in UK history. Nearly 200 men were sexually abused and raped. Um, Many of the men were not even aware that this happened. They were subsequently informed by the police who'd found evidence of it. And the majority of victims were drunk or drugged and they were, you know, they blacked out for the duration of the time of their assault. 
And interestingly, one of the methods the perpetrator used to entice his victims was to offer them support while they were feeling intoxicated. So the perpetrator described himself to them as a good Samaritan and a Christian and said, you know, come to my flat and I'll offer you some shelter and care while you're feeling this way. And the vast majority of his victims were actually heterosexual men. So the reason I set the book in this context really is because you know we're all so much more aware of sexual violence we've had successful campaigns such as hashtag me too movement um, and it really raised public consciousness about sexual assault and when men tried to use the hashtag on social media for example to to talk about their own abuse there was some resistance and the resistance was that men were jumping into spaces that were actually designed for and by women to share their own experiences and that being so you know, there are still very actual little resources for men to seek support or share their own experiences of mm. sexual violence. I mean, I was um, I was aware of the case um, from the national media, but more so, I think, because I live in Manchester. I just wonder what you think about the level of press attention that got. I remember it was on the news for a day. Um, so it was on the national news and on the local news for a day. I don't remember any TV discussions about it. So where there's usually some sort of high profile case, we'll have morning chat shows and so on discussing this. I don't remember any of that, mm. that taking place really. Mm. Um, so, you know, again, it was the shame, the stigma, the mystery that surrounds it, the hiddenness that surrounds it. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. Right. Let's, um, let's move on to uh, looking at sexual violence against men in the Bible. And, um, the story that we're going to start with is the story of Lot in Genesis 19. And it's a very similar story to the one in Judges, which I discussed with Helen Painter in the last podcast. But we're told in chapter 18 that Sodom and Gomorrah's sin is very, very great. And therefore God plans to destroy these cities. Two um, angels disguised as strangers come and find Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, at the gates of Sodom. And he gives them shelter. Tell me what happens next. Lot gives the angels some shelter. And then while, um, while they're at the house, um, men from all the city of all ages come and surround it. And, you know, they're banging on the door and they say, Lot, bring down your guests so we can know them. You know, and, and the Hebrew verb to know means to know in a sexual sense, as we know elsewhere in, in the biblical text. So Lot goes outside to speak to the men. He shuts the door behind him and he begins to plead with them. He actually offers up his two virgin daughters instead. And he says, let me bring these, these girls out to you and you can do what you like. But don't do anything to these men. They've come under the protection of my roof. The men persist. Um, the two angelic men actually come and intervene. They reach out and pull Lot back, Lot back into the house, shutting the door. And then Lot's guests blind the men outside so they can no longer find the door. They tell Lot to get everybody out of his house because they're about to destroy the place. And the angelic men take hold of Lot's wife and the daughters, take the hands of them and lead them out the city. And, and God rains down burning sulphur on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot and his daughters escape, but his wife looks back, so she's turned into a pillar of salt. Um, I mean, it's interesting that the sin that Sodom and Gomorrah committed, which means God wants to wipe them out, is never explicitly mentioned. Now tell me why it might have helped generations of <laughs> biblical scholars and others since if God had been a bit more specific about this. Yes, it would have really helped. Um, I mean, the story is really popular known and it's known because it's a story related or used to talk nowadays about homosexual activities. But we know it's a story about attempted male rape. 
Um, and instead of using it to condemn sexual violence or potential sexual violence, what's happened through Christian tradition, certainly, is that it's become a clobber text against lesbian, gay and bisexual people. Um, and, and one of the reasons for this is it could be that, the, the, you know, one of the myths of rape is that rape is to do with sexual attraction. Um, and, it, and it's not. Rape is always about power and it's always about aggression. So the legacy we have of this text is, is that it actually begins to perpetuate rape culture and, and incites homophobia, really. That can include further violence against LGBTQ plus people. Um, so, you know, that, that's why the text is very problematic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is extraordinary, isn't it, when you read it, that it's become to be seen as God's condemnation of homosexuality. There's nothing explicit in the text there to suggest that at all. And yet, as you say, it's become a very popular trope. You have some Christians holding up banners, you know, anti-gay rallies saying God hates fags, Genesis 19 and so on. I just wonder how it's come to be read that way. I, I don't fully know the answer to that mm. question. I think it'd be like trying to find a needle in a haystack, really. Um, we do know that elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, we do have condemnations against homosexuality, you know. So people may read the text in conjunction and think this is an example of, of what's being warned against. So, you know, when people read intertextually and they read across, across the whole Bible, maybe these are things that have, have come out and they've linked them, you know, with, with homosexuality, but it's not about that. And, you know, we need, to, we need to correct this record, really. It is about attempted male rape. So we've not finished with Lot and his daughters yet because they're sheltering in a cave in the mountains and they're there so long that Lot's daughters begin to worry that uh, Lot will die up there and there are going to be no men available to father their children. So the elder daughter hatches a plot. Tell me what that is. Yeah, so she does. So she's very concerned that she can't have children, there are no men about. So she concocts a plan with her younger sister to get the father drunk on wine and then to sleep with them in order to get pregnant to preserve the family line. So once Lot's drunk, the eldest daughter has sex with him, and, and the text tells us he's unaware of what's happening. The next night, the scenario is repeated with the younger daughter, and again, Lot doesn't know what's going on. And the plan, the text tells us, is successful, it works, because both daughters get pregnant. So some readings of this suggest that you know maybe this is actually about Lot's incestuous abuse of his daughters uh, but you want to read the text at face value explain why yeah so I mean the text actually um, speaks back to a number of rape myths so you know the first myth that it speaks back to is that the myth that girls or women are not perpetrators of sexual violence the fact is they can be um, and the second myth is that men cannot be victims. Well, here, Lot is unaware of what happens. You know, it, it tells us twice in both scenarios that Lot is unaware of what happens to him. It also speaks back to contemporary rape culture um, that suggests that the victim's somehow to blame if they've let themselves be vulnerable in some way. Um, you know, so they've left themselves vulnerable to being raped because they've, they've drank alcohol. We have a similar text elsewhere, actually, where Noah... Um, is, is drunk from the grapes of his vineyard and, you know, he's in the tent and something happens to him. We're unsure what happens there. So for a man to leave himself vulnerable, are they to blame? Well, we have that all the time with, with rape trials and rape cases where people are asking what people have worn, have they been drinking, how much have they consumed? 
And, you know, that type of questioning shifts the responsibility away from the perpetrator to the victim who somehow must have been at fault. I mean, there's absolutely no condemnation in the text of what happens, is there? I mean, actually, it's a seems to be presented as a neat solution to a problem because the important thing is, you know, you have children. Yeah. I want to go on to another story in the Bible, and this will be very familiar to people from... Um, West End musicals. So this is the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph's looks and handsome figures had attracted her attention. Every morning she would beckon come and lie with me, love. The stories in Genesis are actually rather different from the musical because we're told that, you know, Potiphar comes and interrupts them um, in the act. But actually in the Genesis story, Joseph gets away from Potiphar's wife and then makes false accusations against him. Now, what do you make of this? The, the text here, you know, there are a few things going on. Number one, we have a woman perpetrator. Potiphar's wife, who has no name of her own, of course, is still in a very masterful position. She, you know, Potiphar's the master of the house. She's the wife. She's got a very powerful position over Joseph, who is the servant. Joseph's doubly abused in, in this text, really. First of all, Potiphar's wife's, she's privileged, she's powerful, she's control, and she's absolutely relentless in lavishing this sexual attention on him. So not only does he try and get away from that and he's put in an awkward position, he's then accused of raping her or sleeping with her um, when he rebuffs her. So, you know, he's a slave and slaves are considered property of the household. I mean, she is in a very powerful position vis-a-vis him. But one suggestion, it might be that she's being used as a tool to entrap Joseph. And we don't we won't know if that's true or not, but that's a possibility, isn't it? Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a different version of the text um, that, that takes place in Islam, in the Quran, for example, where Potiphar's wife um, invites people around to the house. And she says, come to the house and see for yourself just how attractive Yusef is. Um, and they're all peeling fruit, so they've all got these fruit knives. And when Joseph enters the room, because he is so beautiful, the women cannot take their eyes off him. So they end up cutting the fingers. Um, you know, and the Quran says, this is not a human being, this is an honourable angel. So, you know, is is desire and his attractiveness how can anybody resist but nobody wants unwanted sexual advances on them the other story that people know and it's another story of abuse perpetrated by women is the story of samson and delilah tell me why you see this as a story about the rape of a man yeah and there's a lot of metaphors used in this text um where samson is sexually humiliated um, so Samson falls in love with Delilah and, and the rulers of the Philistines say to Delilah, go and find out the secret of his great strength and um, we want to overpower him and we're going to reward you with silver if you find this out. And Delilah wastes no time and she's really upfront and direct about her activities. She says directly to, to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Um, so Samson gives her several wrong answers at first and then finally after her relentless pressing and conjoling him he tells her the truth and you know Delilah nags and prods him day after day and and it says the source of his strength is that a razor has never been used on his head um, and if his head were shaved his strength would leave him and Delilah puts Samson to sleep on her lap and calls for someone to shave off the braids on his head um, and this works because both his strength and the Lord leave Samson in terms of what's this got to do, you know, with sexual violence, you know, we don't have any genital activity here going on. 
But ancient readers of this text would have been very aware that the, the Hebrew verb used to mean weaken or make helpless or subdue is elsewhere translated as rape. Um, so, you know, linguistically, that's one thing that may be lost in, in some of the translations we have today. And ancient readers would have been aware of this, you know, that he's feminised in some way with the loss of his hair. So the hair becomes symbolic of his power. And when this is cut off, he's symbolically castrated and, you know, he's feminised in some way. Um, I'm confused about how shaving of the hair is a feminising of Samson. Well, what lots of interpreters have said about the text is that the hair is symbolic of his manhood. Um, you know, he said, don't cut this off, and, and she's cut it off, he's, she's castrated okay, him yeah, in I some understand, way. Yeah. I mean, heads are often shaved, aren't they, as a, a way of exerting control and humiliating. You think about Nazi concentration camps and yeah. you know, other torture chambers. Uh, where, well, where they go on to torture Samson in the text as well, so although it's not Delilah... You know, Samson is later tortured. They make a sport and a spectacle of him. So, yeah, but this is more a metaphorical example um, of sexual humiliation, really, that, that interpreters have seen, you know, over the last few years. Now, you go on in your book to talk about the ordeal of Jesus and to insist that his torture and crucifixion will have involved sexual assault and humiliation. Where do you find evidence for that within the biblical text? Yeah, so the accounts of Jesus as four stripping, they do vary slightly from gospel to gospel. Um, but he is stripped in the gospels. And, and this is an act of public humiliation. We know his clothes are divided up amongst the soldiers. Um, and, you know, one really details what his undergarment was like. So in these accounts, we, we, know, we know Jesus is stripped. It's a public event. And we know he's no clothes. So... For enforced nudity is an example of sexual violence. Mm. And, you know, this area is quite controversial and difficult for some people to think about. You know, thinking of Jesus as a victim of sexual abuse does, though, counter the myth that men are not victims of sexual violence. And it actually allows us to look a bit more at the shame and the stigma that surrounds sexual violence and sexual violence against men. I mean, there's been some great work done by David Toombs, Jamie Reeves, Michael Trainer on this. And they look at how recognising Jesus as a victim of abuse can help the churches in responding to and dealing with sexual abuse scandals today. From my point of view, you know, a blindness to this false stripping and a blindness to Jesus' sexual violence has actually led to a blindness to all men who experience sexual violence today. How, how has it led to that? Because we don't see it. So, you know, the, the, the crucifix is a religious symbol. We see it in churches all the time. We actually see it, you know, as part of our culture in fashion and in the jewellery that people wear. It's that recognisable that we sometimes fail to see the horror in what's happening in that scene. Have you come across people, when you've spoken to them about this, who have found comfort and succour in the idea that, yes, Jesus was a victim of sexual abuse? Most of the people I've spoken to about this actually it's like oh gosh it is there yes you know and and there's very few people who, who deny it when you say look at what the gospel says and look at what the biblical text says so while it is controversial and difficult for some you know it, it, it does allow us to think about what people actually think of all victims of sexual violence so if we're reluctant to see jesus as a victim because he was forced to be nude surely that reveals some sort of distaste for anybody who's been a victim of sexual violence that they're damaged or sullied or, or blameworthy but 
for many people that's why we see in Jesus a figure who knows our suffering um, and knows what we've experienced but then at the same time we're reluctant to let Jesus know our suffering if we're saying he wasn't a victim of sexual violence at the same time okay so tell me when your book's out tell me what you hope readers will get from it okay the book's out I think it's the 23rd of October what I want people to get from it is just an awareness of what is happening and does happen to men and particularly around the myths about sexual violence and how we can ground that in religious traditions that maybe don't see it or have actually fueled it in some way such as the reception of the Genesis story Okay, Chris, thank you ever so much for joining us for this Shiloh podcast. Thank you, Rosa. Uh, please subscribe to the Shiloh podcast, all one word, .captivate.fm, or from wherever you get your podcasts, and send us your feedback. Chris, tell us what the website address is now, because it's a new one. The website is, we've got a new website, www.shilohproject.blog. Lovely. Thank you ever so much. Follow us on Twitter, at Pod Shiloh. See you again soon. Bye. Bye, Rosie. Thank you.